Think, debate, inspire. Debates on pressing global challenges. A podcast of the Robert Bosch Academy. Well, hello and welcome to the new episode of the podcast series Think, Debate, Inspire. My name is Henry Ataka, Senior Vice President of the Bosch Foundation. And I'm Pradnya Bivalkar, Senior Project Manager at the Robert Bosch Academy. And our guest here with us today is Kate Crawford. Kate is a scholar for social implications of artificial intelligence. And I want to read the name of this book correctly. Uh, the book you published was called Atlas of AI, Power, Politics and the Planetary Costs of Artificial Intelligence, which is a book in which you're trying to basically dismantle the myths that AI uh, is something that happens somewhere in the cloud, far away, no no real costs, nothing tangible, nothing really that affects us. Highly recommend uh, reading it. Great that you're here. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much, Henry. Thank you, Pradna. It's lovely to be here. And so let's start with the basics in terms like every good, you know, social scientists, when we talk about generative AI, we first have to ask, what do we mean by that, right? Mm. And so I, I guess the, the, the easiest interpretation or, or definition would be it's algorithmic processes that create something new out of vast amount of data. And you look at me a bit critically, so maybe that is already a wrong definition, um, but just One thing that I want to ask you to start with is that you once said, well, artificial intelligence is neither artificial nor is it intelligent. And maybe you can say a little bit about why that is and what you mean by that. Mm. Happy to. No, and I thought that was a very good opening definition. But I think part of what I do in my work is look really closely at where we set the boundaries of a definition. So part of the issue with artificial intelligence is that it's understood as being immaterial, abstract, objective, algorithms in the cloud, you know, and we, we think about it as a set of processes that are running on you know, data sets. And that's not wrong. I mean, absolutely, it is about, you know, algorithms making interpretations from large data sets. But by looking at the wider infrastructures that make that possible, we start to see that these AI systems are neither artificial, which is, in fact, they are enormously material. Because in order to do that, you need to be running large-scale planetary data centers that use enormous amounts of energy and water and minerals, and which indeed is driving a new geopolitical crisis. And it's that material layer that is, is so often written out of these definitions. On the other hand, we have this claim of intelligence that we're seeing, possibly even superintelligence being produced by, by these machines. And here too, I think there's a trap, which is that intelligence as we have understood it over many centuries is human intelligence, which is embodied, it's relational, it happens in context, within a culture. That means that intelligence has meant many different things over time. So when we look at these systems, if we think of them as large-scale statistical pattern recognition, that's a very different way of describing it. And I think that means that we're able to be more skeptical and critical about what it can capture and what it misses. Mm. So again, it's not intelligent in the sense of human intelligence. It's something else. Mm. And it's by starting to analyze and study the specificities of that something else, mm -hmm. that we begin to understand who it might be benefiting and who it might be harming. Mm -hmm. 
Is there an alternative term that you would use if, if, if this term is so deeply flawed? Well, what I tend to do is is to, to really look specifically at how something is yeah. built. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I tend to think a lot about planetary systems and logistics mm -hmm. and supply chains. And, you know, we could look at that. So if you talk about Amazon, rather than saying, oh, Amazon, it's all AI, it's like, no, this is what the late modern structure of planetary logistics looks like at mm -hmm. scale. Uh, if we're talking about something like Facebook, um, many people think Facebook is a social media company. Mm -hmm. Not at all. It's an enormous, you know, facial recognition and now object and planetary recognition mm -hmm. system uh, that's being applied in different domains, you know, including the so-called metaverse. So I think it's about bringing that type of precision to what we're talking about. And I think the term AI has already stuck. I think there's mm -hmm. there's no way of getting rid of it. But perhaps we can look behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. When we hear this term, it should set off a little alarm bell that says, okay, let's look at what's really going on here. Nice that you brought this behind the curtain metaphor, because uh, I wanted to ask you about that, because it comes up in some of the uh, interviews I read with you and, and statements you made. Because so when we talk about AI, like with every technology, you have normally two camps. You have the dreamers, utopians that believe that finally this is going to set us free and humankind will, you know, um, fully evolve to the state where they always wanted to be. And then the others, the dystopians who say, it's, you know, the robots are taking over the world and we are going to lose all creative ability. Mm -hmm. um, and the later camp often hears that. And, well, you know, these the, we find technical fixes for these kind of challenges, right? So, yeah, the data set is uh, racist, hence the outcome of the AI is racist. If you change the data set, um, you know, the result will be better. And I think you called, uh, you called that the enchanted determinism, I think was the term that you used. And you say, no, look behind the curtain like an Alice in Wonderland, you know, the magician is not actually the scary magician, but this was an old man that was sitting behind the curtain. It's always an old man who sits behind Wizard the curtain. Wizard of Oz. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and so, and so what, what, is, what, what would you, uh, like what kind of uh, regulatory bodies would you see missing? Mm. Uh, and, and what do we need to really focus about? Like, how, like what is the stuff which, which we you know, um, pull the curtain aside? Mm. Well, Henry, this is a lovely multi-part question because there's so much in what you just said. And, and I think I'd start by uh, really starting to pull apart this dualism that sits inside the AI debates of utopianism and dystopianism. I, I, I think this is an enormous danger too because it prevents us from being pragmatists and mm. materialists, looking at how these systems are actually being used now, their impacts in the world as we sit here having this conversation. This is something we can study. This is something that we can actually get our heads around and see and track and understand. So there's an empirical question that I think lies at the heart of this debate. Rather than sort of moving into the fantasy world of, of tech utopianism and, and the so-called existential risk dystopian model, to start to say these are current logistical technical systems that are run by a very small number of companies. And we can study those and we can see what their impacts are right now. And so taking that middle path, if you will, taking that pragmatic empirical perspective is really central to my work. Mm -hmm. So in terms of if we take that path, if we walk down that road a few steps and say, what type of regulation is necessary at this time? Well, what we can see is that in just the last 12 months, we've seen 
because of generative AI, a shift where these tools and systems that in many cases were really just being tested in labs mm. have now been implemented and are reaching billions of people. Take ChatGPT, for example. ChatGPT broke 100 million users in its first two months mm. of being accessible. That has never happened in human history. It is the fastest growing consumer application mm. that we've ever seen. That includes search. That includes Spotify or TikTok or anything else you can think of. Mm. There has been nothing that's moved that quickly. So what that means is that we've seen an extraordinary... And there's debates about it having a soul or a consciousness and whether, you know, all exactly, these kind of things. Exactly. Exactly. When what we should be saying is this is a consumer device, an interface, which is now shifting how we access and even understand what information is, enormous epistemic consequences. This is something that shifts modes of production, enormous labor consequences. And this is something that shifts the idea of truth itself, which has enormous political consequences. So we can look at each one of these areas in turn, the epistemic, the political, and the labor structures that this will impact. And, and, and each one of these is serious in itself, let alone if you combine all of them together simultaneously at a global scale. So that raises an enormous challenge for governance and for regulation. And for me, I have to say, I, you know, I've been working in this space for, gosh, almost 20 years. I've never seen a perfect piece of legislation. In the case of the United States, there's almost no regulation whatsoever. And that's after just decades of work trying to even get strong federal privacy laws that we don't have. After everything that we've seen from social media and Cambridge Analytica, it really, I think at this point, we have to take a realist's perspective and say, what is needed here? And if I you know, had a magic wand, I would say we need global regulation. We need a global system of governance. Now, obviously, when you hear global systems of governance, everyone rolls their eyes a little and says, well, you know, I mean, we're at a point in history where nobody is even taking that seriously anymore. We're at the lowest ebb, according to every survey that's been run, of belief and faith mm. in even institutions like the UN. So where would this happen? How would it happen? Well, I think we have to look to the 20th century. Other technologies, such as nuclear, was so clearly and immediately understood as having genuine, deep and profound threats, as well as enormous opportunities, that we very quickly moved into an international discussion around how to regulate this new capacity. We need something again, mm -hmm. very similar for artificial intelligence. And indeed, it's not the only thing that we need. We need the same thing for climate change. So we as a global population are being pushed to have to think about things at a global level. I think this is going to be one of those issues that brings us to the brink very, very quickly. And that means indeed, hopefully, having a global conversation very soon. Mm. Can I just, before um, uh, Pratnia is already looking antsily to ask, uh, <laughs> ask also the next question, but, but because you bring up a global legislation, I, I just mm. want to uh, have one follow-up. As you know, in the European Union right now, we have this discussion about a new AI mm -hmm. uh, Act uh, bill that is discussed. Um, and you sometimes mentioned in passing where the EU is uh, a bit ahead of, for example, the US mm. uh, in these kind of legislative terms. Not so much in development and application. That is something where the European countries lagging behind the US or China, for that matter. Mm -hmm. um, 
two part question one part what do you think works well in the current draft of the european bill what do you think that other countries should look at mm -hmm. and maybe where there's also uh, still some work to do but then the second question that's related to you, what you just said about global governance and global legislation how can legislation in one european block one global block the european union can actually affect global change like you're describing it i mean is it is it like with the data protection directive where we have seen simply by the need of companies to do business in europe that mm -hmm. it became a global standard inadvertently mm -hmm. um, is that the logic also in ai or do we need something what you're describing more like an international non-proliferation pact for mm -hmm. ai technology or something mm. like that i would say yes to all the above <laughs> so let's take them in turn the AI Act, as it's currently framed, at the very outset, we have to say, it is a fantastic thing that it has happened at all. And it's been years in the making, and it is the world's first omnibus act for regulating artificial intelligence. This alone has to be praised. This is an important and courageous step on the part of the EU, and a deeply necessary one. Keep in mind also, though, it was prepared and framed before this new generative AI wave. So there is some backfilling that's going on and a lot of conversations that are happening in a lot of corridors right now about what will constitute general artificial intelligence by the way that it's defined in the Act. What is also interesting about the Act is that it has these criteria, sort of a pyramid of risk from high risk to medium risk to low risk. And while I think this is certainly an interesting taxonomic principle to begin with. What it has created is almost a, a kind of permissiveness down the chain, which is this idea that a technology is itself inherently high risk or low risk. But this simply isn't the case. It's always about where that technology is applied and how and to whom that will determine its risk. Let me give you an example. So in the case of something like, uh, we could say ChatGPT, ChatGPT could be highly effective if you're, you know, an office worker and you're using it to summarize very long documents in the course of your day. But it might be extremely damaging if you want to try and use it to produce a news story without fact-checking, of course. Again, one is high risk, one is, you know, medium, perhaps some risk, but, but not very high risk. But then there are other technologies like, for example, emotion recognition, which I write about in Atlas of AI, which I think are just frankly unscientific. The idea that you can use an AI system to read somebody's face and look at their expressions and then know their internal state mm. without them telling you. Uh, this, again, has been shown by many psychologists to be simply untrue. Uh, through enormous review studies by psychologists like Lisa Feldman Barrett, we know that there's simply no correlation between the expression on someone's face and their true internal mm. state. And yet we have technical systems claiming to do this every day, being fed into hiring, being fed into border checks, being fed into the criminal justice system. This to me is an instance of a technology that should be highly restricted, if not entirely banned. Mm. But again, it doesn't sit within that pyramid in that particular way, as yet in the EU. It may It may yet when we start to see this come to pass. So this is a long way of saying that I think the, the AI Act is a very important pillar. It's not a, it's not a complete story. It's, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. What it will do is do some powerful, I think, 
re-architecting of the global scene, as we saw with GDPR, data protection, etc. So it's part of the story. This then idea of what a global governance system would look like, I think, is much more like an inspections regime, something that would actually be a set of agreements. It, it, obviously, the, the sort of legislative framework, I think, would be a complex one, but we could certainly think about this more as a governance framework. And that is absolutely within our grasp. Those conversations are happening. I don't think they're happening fast enough and with sufficient urgency, but they are slowly beginning to emerge. And that's where I have real optimism. So um, I, I have a lot of keywords <laughs> to, to stick to the course uh, that I kind of latched onto. So from this point on, the conversation can go in so many directions. Mm. But let's start with one level, which is also very close to your head, and you've been speaking about it a lot. So as you rightly said, um, there have been a lot of comparisons, um, especially since the film Oppenheimer was mm. released uh, with, with uh, the dirty bomb and, you know, and mm -hmm. the potential of, of this monster that has been unleashed and it's impossible to get it back in the bottle. But the impact of what has been unleashed, I think it starts to dawn on the scientists, on people who work on it only after it has been unleashed. Mm -hmm. You know, till that point on, you're, you know of the potential, but the scientific curiosity kind of pushes you in, in, in that direction. Um, but sticking to the level of power and dynamics, because that was also a conversation we had in one of our last episodes with Amy. Mm -hmm. um, so if you were to have uh, you in, in the proverbial Oppenheimer shoes, and, you know, imagine you're looking out of that window and just coming to grasp with the monster that has been unleashed and you're thinking of power and dynamics and, and the kind of things that it can unleash mm -hmm. going forward. What is the scariest scenario that comes to your mind? Because we are heading to very key elections in different parts of the world mm -hmm. in the coming two years, um, to be specific. And depending on in which direction things go, um, I don't want to imagine where we are headed. Mm -hmm. Some thoughts on that. I love this question because, of course, I know that you and I have both gone and seen Oppenheimer and have lots of thoughts, uh, but that would be a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> so instead, uh, let's let's take your imaginative exercise. And, and, and I particularly like this one because I think about the way in which the AI industry is currently functioning, which is that it's uh, as a labor force, it's primarily led and driven by people with computer science degrees and engineering degrees who don't necessarily study history or sociology or anthropology or philosophy, and who may in many cases have spent a lot of time just really looking at algorithms and data and just in that very narrow sort of technocratic sense um, that we discussed earlier, Henry. And, and, and I think the problem there is that there can very easily be a moment where you create something and it's not until you sort of look through the screen and start to see how people use it that you can see the real danger. And certainly the you know, the work that I've done for so many years has been thinking about these social, political and environmental implications in advance as mm. I start to see these technologies being developed from the very outset, which is why I like to be in labs where I can see people actually making these systems, talking with engineers, talking with computer scientists. So when I look at what, we, what we're facing now and, you know, if we'd have to think widely across all of the forms of AI, and there are many, you're absolutely right that we are facing very real political threats in the election cycles in the next 18 months. We're obviously calling these already the first real AI elections. Mm -hmm. um, in the US, this is, you know, for me, frankly, right now, absolutely terrifying to think about what will happen next year. But I would like to suggest that the biggest risks are deeper than this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We're going to see 
all kinds of media manipulation. Absolutely. The idea of knowing real from false is going to be so much harder for all of us. A post-fact, post-truth. Yeah, in, I in mean, you know, honestly, you could have said that we were post-truth when you see the emergence of, you know, pamphleteering as a form of propaganda in the 1700s. Mm. I mean, you know, we've had post-truth forms of media for centuries. The thing that's changed is scale and the absolute sophistication of these messages to look absolutely genuine, absolutely organic and absolutely part of your social world. Mm -hmm. But perhaps the deeper question here is really this question around power concentration, which is that the number of people who are designing these systems has really got to a, a frighteningly small number. Mm -hmm. Again, if you think about uh, generative AI at scale, there's really only, depending how you count, three or four companies that are doing this across the globe. That will change. But right now you are looking at power concentration, the likes of which we haven't seen since big oil mm -hmm. or perhaps even the railways. Mm -hmm. I mean, really just these transformative moments where power was held in so few hands. That to me is far more concerning because what we then have created is a scene where these companies have more power than nation states. Mm -hmm. in, in some cases, more than many nation states put together and no democratic structure around them, mm -hmm. no need to answer to anyone other than their shareholders, or in the case of some of the companies that I'm speaking of, they don't have shareholders at all. We're talking about one or two men at the top of a tree making these decisions for the world. Mm. And that, I think, is very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Can I just squeeze in a little follow-up question to that? I think it's crucial, these kind of power, power questions. What you just, I mean, what you're describing is frightening, and it, you know, any kind of monopoly, olig uh, oligo oligarchy. oligarchy. Thank you. Uh, is problematic. However, people might argue in response to what you just said, well, the way this came to be is because we have in our capitalist economic system incentives to create innovation uh, that lead to those things because we need big investments, we need patents that protect certain, uh, certain property. Um, uh, and supply chains are dominated by the global north to the global south and, and these kind of issues. So I'm wondering, to break off these power structures that you're describing, is it possible without completely dismantling the capitalist system? Or <laughs> <laughs> And if so, how? What oh, mechanisms? And, and we have 10 minutes to do it all <laughs> yes. right now. So let's Save get the ready. World. Absolutely. Let's go. Well, I, I'm always suspicious of uh, arguments that say, well, in order to have any change at all, first step, Dismantle capitalism. I mean, it's, it's an extremely high bar to reach. As someone who was born in a socialist country, I, mm. I share that skepticism. Yes, I think, I think we are on the same page here. That doesn't mean that there are some aspects of shareholder capitalism that are absolutely pouring oil onto this fire. Um, mm. And we could look, you know, at the, the obvious examples of the fact that, you know, companies are, first of all, beholden to their shareholders, which means that these broader concerns about society, the environment, and so on, have to, by law, be a secondary issue. So yes, this is clearly creating a problem for us. It is interesting that um, some of the most powerful AI companies on the planet were created almost as a response against those structures. So OpenAI, the creator of GPT, was indeed created initially as a non-profit and mm. as a open you know, association that would be sharing its research, sharing its technologies to the world. It has now gone absolutely in 
the opposite direction, although, of course, keeping its name. So there's an enormous amount of cognitive dissonance there that it's open AI and it's now famously the most closed company. We have no idea about what data it's using to train its systems. But what we can tell from earlier documentation is that, indeed, they are using texts, images, sounds from all of the things that we have created and shared on the internet since its you know, first construction in the 20th century. So you raise this idea about patents and intellectual property. We are seeing the largest moment of enclosure of shared commons, of the shared commons of the internet in history. And again, you'd really have to go back to the 1400s through to the 1600s in Britain to see a similar sort of scale of enclosure when we saw the crown enclose mm. public lands that were used by commoners for, you know, grazing their animals, you know, growing crops, and then turning that into private property. We're seeing another enclosure now of the gigantic fields of the internet into now very intensely protected private property, which are these algorithms and models. So I think we absolutely have to learn from history to say, what were the ways in which we started to protect commons? What were the ways in which we started to recognize forms of labor and, and forms of personal protection? Mm. Um, I'm thinking here of the idea of the, the right of publicity, which really emerged alongside the invention of another technology, sort of photography. And you could go and take a photograph of someone in the street and then put it on a cereal box and then sell that cereal box without that person having any right to say, but hang on, that's my face. Mm. So we started to see the emergence of a right of publicity that said, well, now you have control over how your appearance is going to be used in the public domain. Mm. So we are starting to see a return to some of these ideas. I don't think they'll be sufficient. I don't think right now we have a legal structure that sufficiently gives people a strong consent basis to say they don't want to participate in AI systems or train them. We have some options in the EU through uh, Article 4 of the text and data mining exception. Um, but honestly, I think we are faced with a very big challenge in terms of coming up with new counter structures against the most unhinged forms of capitalism, the most feral forms of capitalism, which is what I think we're facing right now. Mm -hmm. Truly, I think we're in some ways really seeing the emergence of a new form of capitalism, one that is just so completely unfettered as to really be needing a new name. I think a mm -hmm. sort of a sort of a, a post-neoliberal form of capitalism that is even more concentrated, that has some elements of a, a sort of a feudal capacity, but it, it also has a, a profoundly global and networked capacity as well. Mm. So um, I'm going to pick up on the keyword capitalism mm. and uh, go on from there. So one of the things that capitalism, especially in the current form that is prevalent, um, has managed to do is drive the wedge deeper in terms of social inequalities. You know, the richer have become more richer, the poor continue to become poorer. I think technology also plays an important role in either addressing those inequalities or helping the wedge to be driven further down. So I'm going to connect that with generative AI because that was one topic that you've also been bringing up, that it's a self-learning mechanism that allows AI to propagate whatever information it puts out there. But it's learning from existing data sets. And these data sets are built up through the dynamics of power, privilege, and people, like you rightly said, a very small group of people who write these algorithms, who have the ability to put that data in, in the first place. So going forward, it can go 
in both directions. You know, technology or AI in this specific case, generative AI, could be used to address those inequalities or not. In an ideal scenario, if you were to kind of suggest two or three things that you say, you know, this needs to be considered when when putting in data or new data sets that are being churned out at at a very massive speed, what would you want? people who do technology who work on technology to be mindful about mm. well you know there's there's so much to be said here and you know one of the things that i'm deeply grateful for is the research team that i'm a part of called knowing machines it's mm-hmm. uh, it's based across the US and the EU and asia pacific and it's this uh, group of international researchers journalists and artists all of whom are looking at training data specifically and I was inspired to create this from uh, an earlier project that I did with the artist Trevor Paglin, where we studied a very influential training data set called ImageNet. And we did a multi-year study that really looked at what it contained. I think possibly for one of the sort of first times really studying its contents, because of course, engineers rarely open up a, a data set to mm-hmm. look at it. It's, mm-hmm. it's used as an infrastructure, as a thing you pull off a shelf and just apply to an algorithm. And I think by looking at training data, you start to see the logics. You also start to see the forms of extraordinary sort of dehumanization. You see forms of social stereotyping. You see really the worst of the internet codified and repackaged as forms of truth. Uh, So it's really by paying close attention to training data that I think we can start to shift the way AI is built. So Mm -hmm. one of the positive steps, I would say, is rather than the current modus operandi of, of, of constructing an AI system, which is that you harvest as much of the internet as possible, use that as ground truth and then train on it without ever looking at it, without ever saying how much of this is, you know, just, first of all, just enormous amounts of junk, how much of it is you know, enormous amounts of, you know, really quite horrifyingly discriminatory, racist or objectifying material. So actually starting to say, let's curate data sets. Let's mm-hmm. be conscious about what we train AI systems on and treat that almost as fissile material mm-hmm. because it is so influential. It is the foundation that will shape how an AI system interprets the world. It mm-hmm. is truly creating its eyes and ears and its cognitive system. So that is the first step that I would say we have to have a completely different relationship to training data as something that is so powerful and foundational. Secondly, I think we need to have a much more diverse way of constructing who creates AI systems. Yes. That means it cannot be a bunch of white guys in Silicon Valley. I'm sorry, it just can't. So many of the problems that we've seen with profoundly discriminatory AI systems that have already been, you know, taken to court, shown to be profoundly harmful, were built by a group of white guys in a lab saying, well, we didn't harm us. It seemed fine for, from from our experience of the world. The minute you have different people in the room asking different kinds of questions mm. with different backgrounds, you start to see different kinds of systems being built. But there are many other steps here too. And 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 honestly, I think the industry has a real moment of really reflection coming its way around how it's making these systems and who it's trying to serve. Because at the moment, what we're starting to see is an intensification of those inequalities that you began by discussing. We are seeing that AI systems are actually driving further wealth inequality rather than the reverse. Mm. So honestly, hoping that, you know, the 
founders of AI companies will just in the kindness of their heart do what's right for the rest of us. That's not a kind of politics that I want to sign up for. Okay. And going back to one of the things that you said way earlier, <laughs> which was <laughs> about the impact it can have on creative professionals or, mm. or labor markets. I think that's an issue that you also did an event with us on, on mm-hmm. in Berlin on, on this particular topic. Um, and during this event, I think in in a very vivid moment, uh, you said that, you know, um, I, I'm acutely aware of the fact that AI is not making life easy, especially for creative professionals. Um, and it's not about having less photographers on the market. It's, it's about the ability to earn a livelihood with doing creative work. Um, but you also said that if put to right use, AI can actually work for the benefit of creative professionals. So um, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little on that. Mm. This is one of the most live debates happening in the Hollywood as well. Right. Exactly. It's Hol- I mean, Hollywood is the first big AI labor strike mm-hmm. in history. And it's it's been months. It's still going. Uh, and quite simply, the Hollywood studios would not agree that a writer was a person because, of course, they want to use AI as writers. They wouldn't agree that an actor was a person. Mm, mm. So you can see what the industry is trying to do. It wants to save enormous amount of money and centralize its own control by essentially using AI to write scripts, to to generate actors, either living or dead. Um, it's, it, it's a huge watershed moment for Hollywood to decide who is it here for? Who mm-hmm. is it trying to protect? Um, and so it is a it is an extraordinary moment, I think. So yes, this is one of the most live issues is are creatives being entirely put out of work by these systems? And I have to say, for me, this is personal. You know, yeah. I, I, as a, you know, as a teen, started as a musician, um, you know, alongside my studies. I've always been someone who's... We have who's, watched yes. <laughs> music videos. Oh, really? Oh, gosh. Well, there you go. That's, all, again, a whole other conversation. But I, I feel really, really lucky that I could, you know even as a PhD student, be, you know, releasing albums, touring the world, um, actually having an income from my music, um, reaching communities of people who were interested in the same kind of electronic music that I was interested in. And and that was possible in a way that now isn't. Mm. I mean, if you look at the economics of being a musician now with Spotify, with the tiny fractions of a cent that you get every time one of your albums is played, you know, what I benefited from has already gone. Mm. Now imagine that proliferating, not just to music, but to writing, to film, to illustration, to photography, to every type of creative practice that has a professional structure around it. That is an enormous change. And the simultaneity and the speed of that is what is so important here, that we have to do something about it now because otherwise these systems are going to be built in. Mm. You will see a Hollywood that isn't about human writers or actors. Mm. And again, all of those fields will simply become deprofessionalized, mm-hmm. and that's very serious. Mm. There's, a very, there's a very great Black Mirror episode on that topic, by the way. Oh, I don't know if you've seen this. I have. This, isn't uh, yeah, it spectacular? With Kate Blanchett and kind of completely taken away the agency of not only the actress, but just users of uh, Netflix copy that they have on this show. But it's actually exactly it's, you know, right. It's a bit scary. Because yeah. who hasn't, you know, signed a, you know, just said click terms well, and conditions. Reads, exactly. Nobody mm-hmm. reads them. Yeah. So we've, I mean, and this is the thing that, that so many creatives are finding is that they've already signed contracts that for years have been written to say, we own everything that you do and we can do anything we want with it. 
So in an era of AI, that means if, you know, if your film studio has been, you know, put you in a film, they now own your face, they own mm. your voice, they can do anything with that. So that presents a totally new way of thinking about what mm. you were signing away that simply didn't even exist at the time. So it's it's interesting to see how past agreements are now haunting this sort of moment of AI because nobody had any idea this was coming, and let alone this quickly. Mm. So um, last but not least, I think one of the topics when one talks about AI, which is very less talked about, is the environmental impact mm-hmm. of of what AI can do to an ecosystem and is already doing to a lot of ecosystems. Um, and I think when it comes to legislations, I think we, one of the other fellows also brought this up, that a lot of people who are in charge of designing these legislations are not actually aware of of the monster or I, I, I don't want to call it a monster because I'm sure there are good sides to it as well. But I think one doesn't see um, the downsides. So climate change or environmental impact is not one of the first things that's talked about when you do legislating AI. Mm. You're talking about political impact, societal inequalities and all of that. So if a potential legislator is listening to the podcast, Mm. what would you want them to be mindful of, if not very informed about, but at least mindful of if, you know, going forward, they're designing a few legislations to keep AI in control, if that's possible at all. Well, I'd say that takes us all the way back to the beginning of this podcast where I said we have to recognise that AI is a profoundly material technology. Mm. So for legislators, what that means is asking the question of, for generative AI, which is now taking over everything, what are its environmental implications? What we know so far is that LLMs or large language models can be up to a thousand times more energy hungry than traditional forms of search, for example. Mm. So every time someone says, oh, well, rather than using search, let's just use an LLM. Let's use that as our company interface or, you know, for our call center. They are calling into being an enormous energy hungry infrastructure that once spun up is actually going to be draining the planet at a time when we are already facing such an extraordinary climate crisis. The same is true of water. So Mm. a study came out two months ago that indicated that for every exchange you might have with GPT, it is the equivalent of pouring out a litre of fresh water onto the ground. Now, every query, every every exchange, so a conversation, a back and forth is one litre of fresh water. Crazy. Now, we don't have that much fresh water on this planet Mm. to go around, let alone for these systems that need so much water to cool them because the amount Mm. of energy that's being produced in data centers Mm. means that you have to flush enormous amounts of water. I can think of millions of people that could use this water for much better use. Exactly. And this is why in Atlas of AI, I use this term, the the planetary costs of Mm. artificial intelligence. If you knew what the planetary costs were every time you spun up a query, You might do it less. You might do it when it's really necessary or not at all if you're not using it for something you really need. It's not a toy, which Mm. is the way that it's been presented to us as something you quote unquote play with. This is the worst way to think about AI. It has extraordinary environmental impacts across multiple systems. We haven't even talked about lithium, cobalt Mm. and rare earth, which is already the subject of, you know, enormous geopolitical battles right now, which are essential to run these systems at scale. And the new blood diamond, basically. Absolutely. These are conflict minerals. I mean, you know, the history of, you know, cobalt alone should, you know, give us pause here. But AI is completely dependent on the mineral supply chain, on water, 
and on energy. These are things that this planet is already under extreme strain around. Mm. So for any legislator asking questions, I would say there are three big things to keep in mind that AI relies on. Think about it as a triangle. Human labor, all of those hidden forms of human labor that we didn't have time to talk about today, but which Mm. again are in the book, but very important. Data, which we have discussed, vast amounts of data, which are just, you know, all of the things that any of us have ever done. Now companies want access to, to train systems. Everything is fair game. And then finally, energy and natural resources, Mm. because the amount of energy and natural resources to run AI supercomputers for generative AI in particular are gargantuan. Mm. So think of that triangle. It's data, labor, and natural Mm. resources. Mm. And that is the heart of how AI works today. Uh, we, we don't want to end the conversation with a question that we always asking at the end because uh, the fellowship at the academy is in Berlin for a reason because we want to also uh, expose our fellows to the city and the country that some of them have known only through kind of traveling through it. Mm. And so one question we always try to ask is what after your months here in Berlin was for you a highlight, uh, a positive surprise, uh, a revelation about Berlin and Germany? Uh, And if you have, also maybe the opposite, like a disappointment or low light. Mm, Definitely too much rain this summer. (laughs) (laughs) That's a highlight or the low light? It's both. It's both. It's it's good for the planet. Um, No, let's, let's be serious. And I think for me, I've always loved Berlin. Berlin is one of my favorite cities on the planet. But but one of the things that's been particularly wonderful this time is connecting with the community of artists and creatives who are part of the AI debate. In fact, in some cases, they're at the forefront of creating the systems that are allowing people to opt out of AI right now. So mm. I'm thinking here of a group called Spawning AI, mm. who I invited to come and speak here at the Academy, um, who created a site called haveibeentrained.com. And if you go there, you can see if your photos exist in training data sets. You can see if your artwork exists in training data sets, and then you can opt it out. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a very profound option that simply didn't exist before a group of artists created Mm. it. And so spending time with those groups, uh, getting to know how they've been working has been, you know, just fantastic. And honestly, you know, this is interesting because of course, Henry, you were saying that Germany doesn't see itself as being at the forefront of AI, but interestingly, the biggest data set that everyone's using right now, Lion 5B, was created here by a nonprofit in Germany. Mm, mm. And this system that allows people to opt out, the first one in the world, was created here in Berlin. Mm. So this is a really important part of the AI story is taking place right now. So I have really benefited from seeing that it's informed my work, it will inform my research going forward. So honestly, I, I have nothing but but praise really for, for this time here. And I think it's been an extraordinarily interesting time. Obviously, there are, you know, political shadows on the horizon that I think have have also given me pause and I've been able to see them more up close while being in Berlin. I am concerned about the rise of the far right across Europe. Um, I think that's, again, feeding into these AI discussions in particular ways that uh, we're going to be seeing more of as we head towards elections. But um, overall, it's just been an extraordinarily wonderful summer. So thank you. And one last personal question. Um We always ask our fellows if there's any particular piece of work, book, music that engages you right now, that gives you inspiration to, you know, just keep going forward despite 
all the frustrations. Or science go. fiction movie as we have. Or talked. anything, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've already discussed Oppenheimer, so <laughs> that's a tick. Um, well, interestingly, I um, I just went to the, the Long Night at the Museums, mm -hmm. which happens here in Berlin every year, where all the museums, or well, a large number of them, are open until 2 a.m. And I could sort of, you know, walk from museum to museum. And one of the things that I found so amazing about this which I've never seen in, in any other city of the world, I have to say. I'm sure it does happen, but I've only ever really encountered it here in Berlin, was the number of people having conversations about art in, mm -hmm. a, in a really public, collective way. And for me, this is one of the things that inspires me and keeps me going, which is that, you know, in many ways, some of these debates that we have about AI are very dry, they're very, you know, conceptual, they're about public policy. But when you go to museums and when you go to art galleries, you see that people are having conversations about big ideas all the time. Mm. And this is one of the reasons I collaborate with artists and do work in museum spaces because it's it's a place of public gathering. It's a place where you can have conversations with complete strangers about really big ideas. Um, and so in some ways they've almost taken the, the, the place of the coffee house in mm. you know, the 18th century. Um, and I think there's there's something, something that I experienced here in Berlin mm -hmm. of of the just the 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 depth and the intellectual richness and the creative potential of those conversations, even just with strangers in museums. So I think that would be the thing that I'm, I'm really taking with me. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us, Kate. Um, and next month, we'll be back with our next episode with a special recording during our Richard von Weizsäcker Forum. Um, that will be the episode that we bring to our listeners from Berlin and Dresden. Um, and thank you to all of you for tuning in. As always, you will find the details of the references that came up during the conversation in the episode description. So do subscribe to our channel on all the platforms and tell your friends about us. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Kate. Thank you both. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. Think. Debate. Inspire. A podcast of the Robert Bosch Academy presenting inspiring ideas to address major challenges of our time. Subscribe to our podcast on all platforms.